let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray uh, that you would help us to understand uh, this word and that through its teaching and through the work of your spirit in our hearts, we would be truly your people, people on whose hearts you have written your law, uh, people who give themselves uh, to living the life that pleases you. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, two questions. How are we to live as believers in Jesus? What standards does he set for us? And the second question, how does Jesus' expectation of the behaviour of his followers relate to the standards set in the Old Testament, to the law of the Old Testament that the Jewish people, those Jesus was ministering to, were expected to live by? Now, if you're a believer, you'll be interested in the first question because to be a believer is to live according to the teaching of Jesus by his standards. And if you're not yet a believer, well, you can still be curious about how Jesus expects believers to live. It may even be one of those things you're keen to know as you weigh up for yourself whether you're interested in the Christian faith. For many of us, the test of the truth of something is how it's expressed in the way we live. But few of us, at least not at first, are particularly concerned about the second question, how the standards Jesus expects from his followers relates to the standards set by the law of the Old Testament. But for Jesus' first hearers and for Jesus' first followers, that was actually the key question. And it's the question Jesus sets out to answer in verses 17 to 20 before he gives six examples in the rest of chapter 5 of what that means for the standards he sets for his followers, the behaviour he expects from them. So he says to those listening, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why was Jesus anticipating that his relationship to the law and the prophets would become an issue? Why would some even think that Jesus had come to abolish the law and the prophets? Now, notice, by the way, it is the law and the prophets, not just the law here. The law, the first five books of our Bible, and the prophets together can stand for the whole Jewish Bible, our Old Testament. And they, of course, that Old Testament mattered to the Jewish people. They were the word of God, the word of their God to them. They were also the key to the Jews' identity as the people of God. 
The record of God revealing himself to their forefathers, rescuing them from Egypt, bringing them into covenant relationship with himself. And they were the source of their continuing distinct identity among the nations as the Jewish people lived by its laws and regulations. So the law and the prophets were fundamental to Jewish identity and life. And so the relationship of Jesus' teaching to them was a natural question. And Jesus' preaching up to this point raised issues about where he stood in relation to the law and the prophets. Jesus, remember, has come preaching that the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, is near. And his hearers needed to repent and to believe that gospel if they were to be ready to live under God's reign. So Jesus was defining membership of the people of God, those who would live at peace under the reign of God, not in terms of law-keeping, but in terms of people's response to himself. And that was big, especially where the religious teachers, the authorised religious teachers, the scribes, and the most popular and influential Jewish group, the Pharisees, had defined membership of the people of God in terms of law-keeping, strict observance of the regulations of the law. So for Jesus' Jewish hearers, the question of the continuity or otherwise of Jesus' teaching and ministry with the existing word of God was a natural one whose answer would determine in their eyes Jesus' authority and legitimacy. And it was one raised with urgency by the difference between the gospel Jesus preached and the teaching of the most influential Jewish groups with their focus on law-keeping. So Jesus anticipates their questions and objections and tells his hearers what, his, what the relation of his ministry and teaching is to their Bible. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now, abolish has the sense of do away with, and I'll end the authority and role of. So the issue is Jesus' attitude towards the authority of the law and the prophets. And Jesus says he's not come to set them aside, but to fulfil them. Fulfil suggests that both the law and the prophets are pointing forward to something, create an expectation of what God would do in the future, reveal the plan and purpose that God has committed himself to bring about. And here Jesus says, he is the one who brings what they have pointed towards, fulfills that expectation, realises God's revealed plan and purpose. Now, Jesus' fulfilment of the prophets is often easier to see, especially in Matthew where he tells us repeatedly uh, that something, say, took place to fulfil what was spoken of by the prophet, either a specific prophecy or a type or pattern of God's action. So we've heard at Jesus' birth, Matthew say, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Oh, and again at the beginning of his ministry, quoting Isaiah 9, Matthew says this was spoken so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So seeing how Jesus fulfils prophecy can be a bit easier. But how does Jesus fulfil the law? What does the law point towards? Well, the law, those first five books of the Bible, 
create an expectation of what the Lord will do in the future by making clear the Lord's determination to have a people for his own, a people who can relate to him according to his word and live in his presence, a people, as we've heard repeatedly in Deuteronomy, who will love him with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. Now that determination to have a people of his own is actually seen from the beginning of the law in the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And it's actually seen in the promises of restoration after judgment that the Lord makes in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, promises which with which the law ends. <coughs> For example, Deuteronomy 30, reading from verse 1, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And it goes on to say then that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So the law shows us God's determination to have a people for his own. And this determination is then made explicit in the prophets, say in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Ezekiel that we've looked at. Uh, consider what Jeremiah says that God will do. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will uh, I'll put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you'll be my people and I will be your God. So what does the law point forward to? The whole law from the promises to Abraham onwards looks towards God's people living at peace with God in God's presence at peace because they've been rescued from their enemies and their sin is forgiven and they do the will of God from their heart. That's what the law, the Torah, was always looking towards, even as it regulated the life of a rebellious people. And that's what the Torah, the law, continued to point towards through the Jews' checkered history of rebellion and judgment, dispossession and return. And so Jesus is saying something bigger in verse 17 than that he will fulfil the law by obeying it perfectly himself. He's saying something bigger even that Jesus will fulfil the law by showing us the true meaning of its laws and regulations, what they are always intending. Jesus is saying that it is his mission that he has come to fulfil the law by bringing into being what the law and the prophets always looked for, the creation of a people who would do the will of God from the heart who would be a truly holy people set apart for their God by being like their God in what they are committed to, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. Now how this will come about, Jesus does not say here, although it's already been indicated in the gospel story by Jesus' baptism and temptation and in John's prophecy of Jesus baptising with his spirit. 
But the rest of the gospel, with its focus on Jesus' obedient death as a ransom for many and his rising with all authority, will show us clearly how Jesus will bring this about, as does the inspired apostolic teaching on the meaning and achievement of his death that speak a lot about the relation of what Jesus has done to the law. So in verse 17 where Jesus says, don't think I've come to destroy or null the law or the prophets, I haven't come to destroy them but to fulfil them, Jesus is making a big statement encompassing all that he will do and teach. But here Jesus goes on to tell us what his fulfilling the law means for the continuing role of the law amongst his people and for how they are to live. Firstly, he says, the law, the written law, has abiding relevance. For truly, I tell you, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, an iota and a dot refer to the smallest letter and the smallest mark, uh, one that distinguished one Hebrew letter from another very similar one, of the written law. And Jesus says, Amen, translated truly here. So he's actually stressing the faithfulness, reliability, the certainty of what he's saying. He's saying, listen to me. The written law in its entirety, down to the smallest mark, is as permanent as heaven and earth. It will continue to be relevant and valid while this age endures. And then he adds, another until clause, until all is accomplished. This is not another time note. It's actually a statement of purpose, reinforcing why the law has abiding authority. It continues until all that's spoken of comes to pass, and that doesn't just happen with the death and rising of Jesus. It will happen when people from every nation and tongue are gathered round the throne praising God forever, when all Israel is saved to live in God's presence in the new heaven and earth. Until then, says Jesus, the law remains. And the consequence amongst his followers of this abiding relevance because Jesus has come to fulfil the law and the prophets is that, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The commandments Jesus is speaking of are the commandments of the law that he fulfills, the Old Testament commandments. To relax them is to set them aside. Jesus here is speaking of someone who allows what the law forbids in their own lives and the lives of others. But to set aside one commandment is actually to set aside the authority of all God's law. And such a one, says Jesus, will be called least in the kingdom. By contrast, the one called great, speaking of God's assessment, is the one who acknowledges the authority of God's law as fulfilled in Jesus in his or her own life. They do them and then they teach them to others. That doing and teaching, of course, will be different now that Jesus has come to fulfil the law. Jesus himself is about to demonstrate that difference in the verses that follow. And the rest of the scripture shows that, doesn't it? 
I mean, we wouldn't call the author of Hebrews who teaches us not to go back to a literal obedience to the commandments about sacrifice as one of the least in the kingdom of heaven. Nor would we reckon Paul who teaches us that we don't need to obey the Mosaic Law's food and calendar regulations. We wouldn't reckon him to be least in the kingdom. In fact, both the author of Hebrews and Paul uphold the authority of the law by showing its fulfilment in Jesus and teaching us to embrace the law as God's word, to obey its teaching by embracing its fulfilment. That is, by embracing Jesus, by putting our trust in him and obeying him. But the authority of the law as the word of God must never be undermined amongst Jesus' people. And what it teaches is to be done done as Jesus teaches us to do it, as he interprets and applies it for us, and as his spirit writes it on our hearts. Now we should just pause there, just as an aside, and think, at a time when some are reluctant to study the Old Testament, believers have to recognise that where the Old Testament is not read and taught, you will have a defective Christianity. Where it's dismissed you'll have an inevitable distortion and misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Believers should expect our pastors to do and teach the law as fulfilled in Jesus, to teach the Old Testament. That's why, by the way, we inflict suffering on our ministers by making them learn Hebrew. But that's good for you, if it may not be good for them, right? But the shock, so so we have to be committed to it and know it. But now Jesus goes on to tell us the shocking consequence of his fulfilling the law, of his insistence on its abiding relevance and continuing authority amongst his followers. I tell you, says Jesus, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that may not be shocking for us, but it was very challenging for his first hearers. Righteousness for the Jews was the conformity of their lives to the standards of the relationship God had established with his people in that covenant made at Mount Sinai. Righteousness was whether or not you measured up to what God said in the law he expects of his people. Now, the scribes were the recognised experts in the law, the ones who taught Israel how to live out obedience to the law in everyday life. They were scrupulous in their observance of the regulations of the law. And the Pharisees were a lay movement that tried to keep the requirements of the law, the Torah, by thinking about what each law required and developing a tradition of application, an oral tradition that explained exactly how you could keep every law. So as far as Jesus' hearers were concerned, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous of people. And of course that was the scribes and Pharisees' own estimation of themselves as well. But let's think about that. What does the gospel show of their righteousness? Well, it shows us that they were serious about obeying the regulations, though they were genuinely serious. Even setting aside, it says, a mint, a tenth of their herbs, dill, mint and cumin. Now, that's, that's pretty 
bothersome really, isn't it? But they did that to keep the law on tithing. Oh, and it tells us that their righteousness was very visible and obedience practised openly, whether it was in ritual washings to ensure that they were clean or praying in the street. In fact, it tells us that they were keen that others saw them doing that as well. So they were a pretty keen people. They were quite zealous. But it also tells us it was a righteousness driven by fear, fear of breaking a commandment, so much so that they developed those extra rules to protect them from inadvertently breaking the commandments, extra rules that would make their obedience more manageable. And the gospel also shows us that for all their zeal, they use God's word to defy God, their traditions and rules to disobey God's word. Jesus actually accused them of making God's word, his command in this case, to honour their parents, void by their traditions. The references are in the outline. He accused them of neglecting the weightier matters of the law, the open-ended demand of the law for justice, mercy and faithfulness and loving people's praise above God's. In their righteousness, what he showed was that there was no love of God, no heart love of God. And when God came amongst them, Jesus, God with us, well, they showed that by wanting to kill him to protect their position. Their righteousness could never fit them to live in God's kingdom under his reign. In fact, it excluded them. So when Jesus says his followers' righteousness must exceed, be greater than their righteousness, he is not talking about quantity, more obedience to more regulations, you know, using even more accurate scales to work out the tenth of your herbs. He's not talking about quantity. He's talking about quality. He's calling for a completely different righteousness if they're to enter the kingdom of heaven, live under God's life-giving reign forever. Now, think that you're one of Jesus' first hearers. Up to now, you have thought the scribes and the Pharisees are models of righteousness, people, in a sense, who've monopolised the righteousness space. And you've seen what they've done and you've been pretty impressed by their thoroughness, their zeal to keep God's law. And so listening to Jesus, you'd have two questions. If the righteousness I need doesn't look like what they do, what does this exceeding righteousness look like? Show it to us, Jesus. Show us the difference. And then because you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, well, you'd ask, how do I get this exceeding righteousness I need? Now, Jesus answers the first question, what does this exceeding righteousness look like, in verses 21 to 48 of Matthew 5, giving six examples of what that righteousness looks like, examples of righteousness in real life, examples that will contrast the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees with what God expects. And in answering that question, what does this righteousness look like, Jesus will also make the answer to the second question, how can I get this righteousness clearer and more urgent? So what does this righteousness look like? Here's Jesus' first example. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, here's the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and says, well, I haven't murdered anyone today. I am a good person. I may have felt like it, but I didn't do it. So I've done what God expected of me. I don't have to worry about the law's judgment on murder, which is death. But Jesus says God's law always looks for more. And notice the authority with which Jesus speaks. He quotes the fifth commandment, spoken as you've heard by God himself at Sinai, and then gives its authoritative interpretation on his own authority. But I say to you, he's saying, I can tell you what God meant. And Jesus says that the law that forbids murder also forbids the attitude that gives rise to murder. Anger against another and all its expressions. Jesus mentions two uh, calling someone raka, that's what they meant when they said insult a brother. Uh, calling someone raka, that means empty-headed. That was actually a pretty everyday term that was only mildly abusive and fool. But the way we speak to others indicates our attitudes towards them, reveals our hearts. And Jesus says that harbouring an attitude, harbouring and expressing an attitude that wants to harm, hurt, demean, degrade another is actually very serious, making you liable to the same kind of punishment, judgment, the counsel, the hell of fire as murder. Now, he's not making murder and verbal abuse equivalent, but he is saying that the righteousness God looks for is radical. It goes to the attitudes of our hearts and an external obedience to the letter of the command falls far short of that righteousness and can leave you exposed to eternal judgment. Now let that sink in and unsettle you, especially where you think that keeping the letter, not murdering, not being violent, gives you licence to express your anger and hatred of another in other ways. And sadly, we can think that and do that, can't we? We can think of ourselves as good because we haven't done everything we might have done to the other person. We only verbally abused them. We didn't thump them. How good am I? We just cut them off in that we didn't pursue them. How good am I? We just became cold towards them, never talked to them again, but we didn't threaten. That is not righteousness but judgment-deserving failure of righteousness. You see, Jesus then goes on to tell two stories, to teach that the righteousness God looks for has a completely different attitude to those with whom we may be in disagreement and conflict with. It's seen not in what we don't do, but in what we do do. He calls for behaviour that will prevent anger, prevent harm, the completely different attitude that prioritises maintaining good relationships through the pursuit of reconciliation. 
So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Now the point of that story seems clear enough, doesn't it, to us? Being reconciled to your brother or sister with whom you've fallen out and it doesn't say whose fault it is, should come before religious activity. And Protestants especially love this because we're not into altars, are we? You know, So we think, yeah, we got the message. But actually Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying that maintaining right relationships where bitterness and anger cannot fester requires urgent, costly and decisive action. Remember, Jesus is speaking to people in Galilee. But they all knew that the only altar that existed where you could offer gifts to God was in Jerusalem, a week's journey away. Now, knowing this, think again about what Jesus is saying. He's saying reconciliation is so important that you from Galilee, having arrived in Jerusalem after a week's journey and are about to realise the purpose of your journey, offer your gift. If you're there and there, you remember that there's an outstanding unresolved grievance. You leave what you are doing and straight away make a week-long journey to sort things out, to restore your relationship. Now, does that challenge you? Do you give reconciliation that priority? I tell you, it challenges me because I find myself just getting carried along with my routine busyness and that it's easier just to keep on doing what I'm doing and to put off having that awkward conversation to leave the issue unresolved. Does it challenge you? Well, Jesus tells a second story. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now Jesus is not giving prudential legal advice. He's actually reinforcing his point. Don't allow bad relationships to stay unresolved. Act urgently even on the way to court or there'll be consequences. You see, here he's encouraging us to swallow our pride, pride that might want to see ourselves vindicated in court, that might refuse to recognise how we've wronged another. And here he is encouraging us to value reconciliation above money for the specific case has to do with contested debt. Rather than being proud, says Jesus, rather than fighting for every penny, the righteous person acts to reconcile, to make friends with the person accusing you or you're in dispute with urgently. The righteous have an attitude that prioritises making peace over vindication or money and pursues that, that reconciliation, that peace urgently. And Jesus adds a warning that a refusal to reconcile carries consequences. It's in the story, but he also reinforces it in verse 26. Another solemn amen 
statement, which is a warning of divine judgment. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's saying don't expect reconciliation with God where you don't value and practice reconciling with others. You'll be left with what you seem to want, strict, full punishment, no release until it says you pay the last penny. The word translated penny is actually a quadrant, which is one sixty-fourth of a denarius of the basic day's wage. And I worked out that's the equivalent to about $3.12. Could you imagine being left in jail for $3.12? Could you imagine refusing to make peace with someone until you had got that last $3.12 that you were owed? So what have we learnt already from this first example of six of the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, hopefully we've seen it's good but challenging. Good because anger is still a problem. And here's an ethic that has zero tolerance for destructive anger in any of its expressions that will allow no excuses, and that's good. It's an ethic that prioritises reconciliation, creates an environment that does not let things sit and fester, does not allow quarrels and disappointments to be left like an untreated infection of mycobacterium ulcerans to become a bandstale ulcer, destructive and life-threatening. You know that, don't you? You can have the infection, it can sit on your leg, a little spot, for months and then it just starts to break down your tissue. Anyhow, you can look that up. It's interesting. right? It's good to have that ethic, but it's challenging, isn't it? For this righteousness extends to actually begins with our thoughts and attitudes. It's not a matter of external obedience to the letter of the law. And that's true here, isn't it? Jesus is not giving us a new law to be observed literally. It would miss the point entirely to think that you could be righteous by avoiding calling people fool, but instead calling them dopey. It's not asking you to adjust your abusive vocabulary. It's talking about your heart. He's talking about hearts, having hearts that desire to heal, not harm. Hearts that respect others as made in God's image, others with whom we should seek to live in peace, removing all causes of bitterness and anger, hearts that look to promote the safety and security of others. So this righteousness is not even satisfied by mastering anger management, controlling anger that's still there. No, it's asking you to learn to genuinely love those who make you angry. The standard of this righteousness, as Jesus will say at the end, as Jesus will say at the end of these examples, is to be like our God. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a righteousness that requires a righteous heart, loving what God loves, hating what God hates being the people the law tells us God is determined to have as his own. Oh, further, this is a righteousness that seeks to shape its behaviour by the principle behind the law, recognising that the command 
Thou shalt not murder was given for the protection and enhancement of the life of others, to allow them to enjoy God's gifts. It's asking really all the time this righteousness, what does God want me to do? Not just what does God forbid. And so it's a righteousness that can't be satisfied by what you don't do, but only by what you do do. It creates a positive goal, not merely the avoidance of anger, but the active pursuit of good relationship. And because of this, and this is where it gets us, it is open-ended. Its achievement is actually not measurable. I mean, you can always know, hopefully, hopefully it's true of you every day that you haven't murdered someone. Uh, and if that's troubling, you go to the police first and then come and talk to me. Right, right, right. But with this righteousness, there is always the question of what more could I do to promote peace, to protect and enhance the lives of others? Seeing what is involved in this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees in the righteousness you must have to be at home in God's reign makes the question of how we get this righteousness the more urgent, the more pressing, doesn't it? For Jesus' pictures of this righteousness show us we are not righteous in ourselves. Who doesn't get angry? Especially when provoked. Who hasn't spoken? to others in anger? Who hasn't muttered under their breath about that other driver? Who has always prioritised reconciliation, made it something to be sought urgently, been willing to take the initiative to heal wrongs? Who has a heart that always seeks God's will, seeks to promote the life and flourishing of others. And these kinds of questions will only multiply as we go through the other examples. We cannot get this righteousness by more of the same, by trying to out-Pharisee the Pharisees in their observance. It's actually a hard issue and it can't be solved by rule-keeping as the Pharisees' response to Jesus shows. Jesus' examples of the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees are actually given first to humble us, to show us our poverty of spirit, our neediness, our lack of this righteousness. In fact, remember, Jesus is speaking to those who are poor in spirit and they humble us to throw us back on relying not on ourselves, but on the one he says gives the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit. They humble us to throw us back on relying on Jesus, the one who says he's come to fulfil the law and the prophets, to create for God that people God's law always looked for, a people who would love him with all their hearts, and be careful to observe all his decrees. Now, how does Jesus do that? That, of course, as I've said already, is the big story. It's the gospel story. But he does it by fulfilling the law in every way, in his own obedience, in his teaching, and especially in his death, his death in obedience to his Father for our sin. In that death, he vindicates, he fulfills the law's righteous judgment on sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. 
more though, in that death, in enduring in his own death the law's just punishment on our sin, he actually helps us, he makes us, every one of us who trusts in him, righteous. It's by faith in him we become righteous. You see, through that death, he fulfills the promise of the law by bringing into being by his death the new covenant where our sins are forgiven, forever remembered no more. But, of course, that's not the only content of the new covenant. The new covenant says God's law now is written on his people's hearts, that we get new hearts that want to love God. Jesus fulfills the law in his death and his rising and he fulfills it by pouring out his spirit that empowers his people now to live God's way, a people in whom the spirit can dwell because they've been cleansed of their sin by Jesus' death. Jesus, through his death and rising, death for sin and rising, fulfills the law and the prophets and becomes the source of this righteousness for all who recognise their poverty of spirit, who will repent and believe his gospel. But we are reckoned righteous in Christ not to neglect living righteously as God requires, but to give ourselves to it freely, wholeheartedly. Not as the cause, but as the expression of being God's people. So if we're believers in Jesus, we will let Jesus teach us what the law now requires, has always required of God's people. Trusting Jesus, we won't minimise the righteousness God calls for from his people because we don't need to. We don't trust in our own righteousness, but his. And that means we can let our failings, our falling short, be exposed over and over again by his teaching. And at the same time, we won't be crushed by those failures. We'll actually let them turn us again to our Saviour in whom we have forgiveness and from whom we can always get help to live his way. And so this means, believer in Jesus, that you can open yourself up to the open-ended demands of true righteousness with gratitude. For by the work of God's Spirit, we can actually grow in godliness and we want to grow in godliness so we don't mind being shown where we fall short so we can change and grow. And so, for example, we will want to be people freed from anger to be peacemakers who can get rid, as the Apostle says. Did I include that verse? Yeah, who can get rid of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander and instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Isn't that good? You know, giving ourselves to the work of spirit, we can grow in the godliness, the righteousness that God requires of his people and so actually be salt and light in our world. So, believer, be grateful that Jesus came to fulfil the law and the prophets and give yourself to the life of righteousness the law calls for 
by doing all that Jesus teaches his followers to do. Never minimise what he expects. Never excuse your falling short. Never try and make it more manageable so you can boast of your own goodness. You don't need to do that if you're righteous in Christ. Open yourself up to what he requires to be daily humbled so that you will rely constantly on your Lord Jesus for righteousness and the power of a righteous life. And if you're not a believer yet, I hope you can see the goodness of what Jesus teaches, of how he expects his followers to live. That goodness will only become clearer as we look at more of this sermon in the next couple of weeks. But as you see its goodness, don't think that you can live this life on your own, that you can have the fruit without the root of faith in Jesus. Because as soon as you do that, you'll be minimising what Jesus expects. You'll be defending your falling short. You'll start talking about the unreasonableness of Jesus' demands and the impracticality of living his way. Rather, listen to Jesus. Be humbled. Recognise the poverty, your poverty of spirit, and turn to him who fulfills the law and the prophets for you and in whom through his death for your sin you can be righteous and be transformed to live righteously. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, please move us to be excited about what our Lord Jesus teaches, about how your people are to live, not to be overwhelmed, not to be discouraged, but to be grateful, to be grateful for this true righteousness, which is so good, that creates, protects and preserves life. And to be grateful that we can give ourselves to it, not be afraid of it, because in our Lord Jesus we are righteous, reckoned righteous. Our sins are forgiven (coughs) and through him we receive your spirit who can change us. Our Father, move us to want to live that righteous life, to be your holy people, so that your name is adorned and not slandered, so that you are honoured as the true, the righteous and the holy God you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.